Welcome, everybody, to Kyle, Kyle, and Friends. Today, I'll be talking to Kyle. My name is Kyle. Uh, Crystal's not here today, as you can see. So anyway, today, I'm going to be talking to Paul's ego. Paul's ego is a hilarious guy, really intelligent guy. Um, and he's part of the Deep Fat Fried podcast, formerly of the Drunken Peasants podcast. Um, I love him. I, th I think he's wonderful. He gets Sometimes he gets accused of being what one might call a doomer you know, like a, a, a pessimist in regards to uh, politics is actually kind of funny because I think they call um, what their their company pessimist production. So it actually, it sort of fits. But anyway, you'll see he's, um, that's a little too flippant and glib in terms of describing his politics and describing his ideology. I think he's a very thoughtful dude. Um, and yeah, I look forward to talking to him. I, I went on the Drunken Pe Peasants podcast uh, years ago, back when they were on that podcast, and uh, I spoke to them, I think, three separate times. We always had a good time. Um, and yeah, I hope hope everybody enjoys it. I'm certainly looking forward to it. So here you go. Paul's Ego, thanks for joining me, man. Um, as I was just saying to you off air, I'm, I'm a big fan of your stuff. I love Deep Fat Fried. Um, I haven't seen, I saw a little bit of Onion Nuggets. I haven't seen too much of that yet. By the way, that's the best name in the history of names, Onion Nuggets, because it makes me go like, Agreed. number one, what is that? Number two, I immediately need to watch it. <laughs> and of then course. I also love, uh, you know, your ideology streams. Those are great. And you just said Cinema for Cynics well, is you. coming back. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of your stuff. Um, and welcome. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Big, big fan of yours as well. We, uh, we kind of go way back. True. I think, uh, we met. In like 2015, for the first time, we were co-guests on the Drunken Peasants back then. This was before I joined the show. Oh, that's and, interesting. Uh, I wrote, whoa, I thought you were already part of the show when I was on it. That first time, I wasn't. No, I was just kind of like a recurring guest there, and they hadn't even, you know, I, I hadn't joined the show yet. So we were just kind of co-guests that day. It was interesting. I grossed you out with my pylon idol cyst story, which I won't. <laughs> <laughs> regale your audience with again yeah i sort of um, i sort of remember that yeah i was you on can look up pylon idol cyst if you want to know what, what you know look it up at your own there's plenty of videos it's 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 an interesting uh affliction yeah i um, was i was on uh drunken peasants i think three three times with you guys or maybe four times with you guys yeah yeah uh, i think it was three or four yeah yeah we always had uh we always had some good lively conversations totally um, one of the things that we talked about, not to divert divert the uh, conversation already, one of the things that we talked about that I feel like doesn't, it's just like disappeared from the left as a talking point was education. We had mm. a pretty memorable exchange on uh, homeschooling and, you know, whether or not we should, you know, intercede in that and properly funding a public education and uh, all of this stuff. What was my uh, take that, on that homeschooling? I don't remember my take on homeschooling. <laughs> I actually had the hot take on homeschooling. Uh, I said it should be banned. Outright. Oh, there's, right. There, there should be, there really can't be an excuse in this country to keep people home, like keep children out of school and to fill their heads with fantasy shit, which is what happens in a lot of home, homeschooling environments. A lot of parents keep their kids out of public school so that they can tinge all of their education with religious shit. Yeah. You know, and I just, I feel like, if you don't ensure a baseline for children, a baseline access to good education, you're you're failing all the way up the chain, all the way up the political chain. I think it's responsible for a lot of the political problems that we see now. Just an uninformed populace, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it starts there. It's, it's interesting because like in theory, 
I want to defend homeschooling, like the principle of being able to say, well, I want to teach my kids myself. But then to your point, in practice, it's almost always a cover for like the biggest religious lunatics in the country to like brainwash their kids on the next level and make them little gremlins. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and, it, and it works too. You yeah. know, I don't, I don't want to, I, I try and keep, you know, my family separate from my work, but I do talk in generalities about them. And I, I have a sister that has a bunch of kids and they're all homeschooled and she's actually trained as a teacher. She worked as a teacher before she started having kids and then kind of did the whole stay at home mom thing. And she's now got, she just had her, I got to, I got to count in my head. She just had her seventh child, <laughs> seven, and she homeschools them all. Is she and Mormon? So it's, um, Is she Mormon? Is that why a lot of no, kids? No, no, no. They're, they're very like uh, fundamentalist evangelical Christians. Mm. that's the best I can do. I've never been to one of their church services, so I don't know what flavor, but um, yeah. And, and so she's homeschooling all of those children and they're all brilliant. Like there's, they're part of that. Like all of those kids are just like whip smart, but my fear is, and I guess we'll see how that plays out as they age up. My fear is, is when they are forced to be out in the world, a world that isn't immediately deferent to anything Christian, how are they going to like, how are they going to react to that? Because, you know, yeah. college and just the real world in general, I, I worry about it. Maybe, maybe needlessly, maybe they'll be fine. I don't know. How has, has um, like family stuff uh, as it pertains to religion helped shape your political or uh, non-religious views yourself? Like has some of your world experience on that front led you to be less religious or, you know, uh, have certain political views or did, do you feel like you came to your beliefs on that front more through just like, you know, an academic approach and just reading stuff and figuring stuff out? I was a uh, nominally raised nominally Christian. So our parents, my, my sister and I, our parents were, they identified as Christian, but we probably went to church like once a year, you know, it wasn't really foisted on us in the way that it is in some religious households. Um, and so I just kind of naturally grew out of it like Santa, you know, almost mm. it was like, it hung on a little longer than Santa did. But by the time I was going into like, you know, getting out of middle school, going into high school, I was, I was calling myself, uh, an agnostic at the time, which is, you know, like at the time I didn't realize that agnostic and atheist are not mutually exclusive terms. Uh, most atheists are technically agnostic. Uh, you know, but it was like, it felt like that middle ground where, yeah, I can call myself an agnostic and not be super offensive to everybody. But over the years uh, in, in high school, it just kind of became the natural thing. I just kind of, you know, it, it was, it was a lot of the little stories in the Bible because I did a lot of reading of the Bible mm. when I was a kid, even though it wasn't foisted on me and like, you know, Noah's Ark and coming to understand like what two of every animal would take to feed for <laughs> 60 days and 60 nights. And how are they getting water on the ocean? You know what I mean? Like totally, I mean, yeah. the whole thing. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a natural thing for me. I didn't have a whole lot of, uh, you know, religion foisted on me. So yeah, for me, I was raised Catholic. My mom is uh, like a cafeteria Catholic type. My dad was non-religious. 
Um, and so I was baptized, you know, I was, I had communion, I had confirmation and all that stuff, but basically I don't know what age I was, maybe like 11 or something like that. My mom or 12, my mom gave me the option for the first time. Like, Hey, if you don't want to go to church this week, you don't have to go. Cause before she would take me every single week when I was a kid. And then the second she gave me the opportunity to not go, I was like, Oh, I am out this bitch because it's yeah. not like, like, I think if you're raised in a religious environment where there's like charisma and dynamism around the religion, like if you go to like a, you know, a black church in the South or something, I probably could have become religious if I, if I was raised in that environment, but raised in a Catholic environment in the Northeast, like you go to, to church and you sit there and the priest is like, a reading from John to the Corinthians. <laughs> and you're sitting there like, oh, gee, come on, shut up. I want to go play video games. Like, what am I doing here? And so I feel like it, it's kind of similar to your story in the sense that it just sort of seemed like the natural outgrowth. Like, there wasn't anything really pulling me hard towards religion. So I was like, why would I, why would I do this stuff? And then to your point on, like, re- reading the Bible— Honestly, that's a good way to make people non-religious is if they actually read the holy text. But in today's day and age, I do feel like now there's this resurgence of like, you know, the Jordan Peterson style, like, oh, this is just an allegory. You know, this is like there's really deeper truths in the stories that you need to dig to understand. And you can't just look at it at the surface level. How would you respond to to those ideas? I mean— there's a ton of cherry picking that goes on, right? Yeah. It, it's allegory when it suits you rhetorically for it to be allegory. For when it's something that would be hard to explain non-allegorically, uh, you know, the rape and pillage of an entire land as ordered by God. You know what I mean? Oh, well, that's just an allegory for the mixing of people or whatever. But, you know, Leviticus, that's not an allegory when it comes to gay people. Mm. As I sit here in my mixed fabric shirt, you know what I mean? Eating pork on a Sunday and working on a Sunday, um, you know, but that that specific part of Leviticus is not allegorical. You know, it's 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 an abomination before God for people to be gay. But, you know, it's just it's such a cherry picking uh, exercise. You know, I started this whole YouTube thing as an atheist guy. I was doing like the whole great debate community thing. That's how I started uh, kind of like interfacing with TJ. He was he was getting real big at that time. And he ended up liking a few of my videos, which mattered back in the day. Because people could see, you know, other people's likes and you could feature other people's videos on your channel. So he was instrumental in getting me my first little early audience. And we were both kind of like doing that whole shouting at Christians thing. Yeah. Um, I, I come from the same vein, man. I mean, that's the name of the channel, Secular Talk. I always talk about how right. my introduction into politics and religion shit, at the same time, it's like I was reading Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, which I thought was brilliant, and Noam Chomsky. And so, like, poof, there you have me. And then I follow the news, and I feel like they their views helped, you know, kind of frame my views. And so I, I have always seen things through a, a perspective that's not dissimilar to theirs. Yeah, I look back on it now and I feel like, you know, I was, I was, you know, in my early twenties or whatever, when I started following all of that. And then my mid twenties, when I started making videos about it and kind of joined the online conversation. And I look back on it now, almost with like, like smiling at my naivete because there was, you know, there's so much more pertinent stuff, I guess, to worry about, I think, totally. which is why I probably don't spend much time, you know, bagging on religion anymore. I mean, when it comes up and it needs to be bagged on, I'm happy to do it. And I'm real good at it. But 
you know, I feel like there are multiple issues that we need to handle before we get to that one. It is, it is disconcerting how religion has just kind of silently infiltrated the political process over the last 50 years. Um, a lot of people think it was always that way, but there was a point in time uh, where evangelical Christians in this country, the pastors used to tell people not to vote. Hmm. They're like, that's not our purview. Uh, to vote, you know, let 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 the people that follow and worship power on on earth here vote. You know, we we're subject to Caesar and we're subject to to Jesus, and so and it was really like an operation by Republicans to invigorate this i this to marry this idea of political activism and Christianity, and it's happened so quick. It's just tumbled out of control to where there's this kind of implicit litmus test. That uh, you know somebody has to be kind of religious to get it elected in a lot of states, and it's a it's a it's a crazy uh, it's a crazy thing, and it definitely needs to be talked about more, in my opinion. But um, yeah, to your point, I remember you know it's like remember the moral majority. There was a time when Pat Robertson ran for president, and he didn't do poorly. Yeah. I think he won at least no. one state. Like he he could have been president of the United States of America, and so you have the rise of the moral majority. You have all these you know televangelists, and you're right when we were uh coming up it it seemed like such a you know pervasive huge part of politics i mean remember in what was it 2004 or maybe it was in one of the elections where it was the midterms and george w bush was president they ran on like we need a constitutional amendment to ban gay people from getting married like that's what they ran on that was like this is our whole thing so people now might look back or look at us now and think, well, I don't understand why that would maybe flavor your worldview so much. But growing up in the context that we grew up in, it was a huge deal. Now, the interesting thing is, um, I do think, and let me know what you think about this, that especially with like the rise of Trumpism and him being like the standard bearer for the Republican Party now, it's almost like the hypocrisy of the evangelical Christians is so obvious that it almost doesn't even you know, you don't even need to mention it anymore because it's like, well, these guys claim they're about all these uh, religious values and then they're backing like the philanderer guy who, who's got like all these allegations of sexual assault against him and who's a, clearly well, one of the least religious people. Everybody's flawed, Kyle. You know, <laughs> That's everybody's, what they say. <laughs> uh, every man sins before God, you know. Um, no, the... Trump Trump passed with them as soon as he did that weird photo op where he's got his eyes closed and a bunch of people are touching him and praying in tongues yes. and stuff. Yes. Um, it's, you remember the photo op? You see he's standing there in all his Trumpian glory with his eyes squinted shut and people are, you know, laying hands on him. That was all. That's all they need. That's yeah, all they need. That's, that's all they want, man. But you're right, because I remember they said there were some articles at the time that said their previous presidents, even Republican ones, were hesitant to take such a picture. They were hesitant yeah. to do it. And then Trump came along. He's like, no, I'll fucking do it. I don't care. <laughs> oh, yeah. He realized that, like, this group of people, all they wanted was to, like, be represented just a little bit, like, and have a little bit of the crazier edge of their religion represented in politics. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, man, I mean, that was one of the ways he galvanized a lot of the more insane, devoted followers that he has, I think. And it's, once again, it's something that's not talked about. Yeah. Uh, the pandering to the religious right. It's kind of looked at as like that. That we hardly even hear it discussed in politics anymore. The religious right, That's but it's right, still yeah. just as strong as it ever was. It, they just are called Trump Trumpians or Trumpites or Trumpers yeah. now or whatever the fuck. 
And, and Trump even pandered to the Alex Jones crowd. When he was running for president, he went on Alex Jones' show. You know, and oh, yeah. on the one hand, it's like, well, I mean, this is fucking psychotic because, of course, it's psychotic. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, he was going to literally any outlet that would host him at the same time where you got like Hillary Clinton, who literally wouldn't even go on like Fox News. So you have right. the, the Democrats, the liberals were like siloed off in their own little corner, jerking each other off. And then you have Trump who's like, I'll <laughs> fucking talk. To, I'll talk to your grandma. I'll talk to your cousin. I don't give a fuck. And then you could see how that ended up working out. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole, that's just the populism thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Trump, Trump was willing to do more rallies. It's just like a lot of people never gave him credit for that. You know, it could be, a lot of people made fun of the Trump rallies, but what, what, what did that actually entail? That entailed him going out there and being a presence in front of people who oftentimes aren't even visited by politicians at the national level because their states don't matter. He went. He went and talked to people and, you know, different, you know, we went outside the normal kind of reign. I mean, he spent a lot of time in the important states as well. I'm not trying to say he didn't, do, but he he campaigned better than any other person did. And he loves like, it. You remember? Yeah. And he loves it too. You can tell he like feeds on the whole energy of the crowd and shit. And he's still out there doing it too. There's a lot of people. Let me, let me ask you how you feel on this because I get a lot of pushback about this. There seems to be this kind of like, certainty on the left amongst a lot of people, not everybody, that Trump's done. There's just no way he's going to get indicted. He can't come back after January 6th. Nobody's going to vote for him, blah, 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 blah. I don't think so. I think he's, I, I think he never left. I think he's doing the same thing that he started doing the last time he won. How do you feel about it? I don't know. I am 1 trillion percent with you. And I've talked about this a number of times on my show. If you go back and look, I remember in like 2015 when he was just starting to run. Now at the beginning, everybody was laughing at him. At the beginning, they were saying, there were a bunch of articles talking about how he paid people to go to his campaign launch event. So everything was so astroturfed and they were holding up the signs. And so at the time, I actually understood the dismissiveness. It's like, this guy's a ridiculous character. Look at the shit he said when he was launching, calling Mexicans like rapists and criminals. And I assume some are good people. But then as time went on, it became very, very obvious that he kept being doubted by mainstream media and by mainstream politicians. And then he kept proving them wrong time after time. So they would be like, all right, well, look, he's not going to get to the debate stage. He got to the debate stage. He's not going to pull number one. He was polling number one. He's not going to win the first debate. He won the first debate. He's not going to win the second debate. He won the second debate. He's not going to win a primary, but immediately won. I don't think he won Iowa. He won, what was it, New Hampshire right after that. And then, and then it was just like, he just steamrolled them. And every step of the way, for some reason, you had idiots out there like Bill Kristol, who's like, oh, we've seen peak Trump and he's done now. And it was never, ever, right. ever the case. And so what I say now, the exact same thing that you say, which is, look, it's not it's not me and it's not you, Paul. We're just fucking looking at the nature of reality. I'm looking at the polling data that shows that Trump is draxing everybody in sight. The closest one to him is DeSantis, and he's way behind him still. So, look, I think he has problems in a general election. I think he probably needs to shut the fuck up about the stolen election because polls show even Republicans don't want him to talk about that shit anymore. But the fact of the matter is, he's just as big a threat as ever. There was a poll that just came out. I, I covered on my show. I mean, he Trump is beating Kamala in the 2024 race by 11 points and he's beating Biden by six or seven points. How can you not take him seriously? Of course you need to take him seriously. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they'd be insane not to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, 
I I almost hate the way that the media looks forward to these elections so many years in advance. But I'm, you know, I've been trained, I guess, by said media to do that myself. And I'm I'm starting to wonder, like, what's what's the plan, Democrats? Like after the trouncing that's coming in the midterms, who is Biden going to stick it out? I have this theory, and I don't know if it'll prove right, but I think we're going to hear that Biden is stepping down after the midterms. I think that he's going to maybe we're going to start hearing rumblings of it. It's going to be floated that Biden is going to leave, but I don't think they can run Kamala either or Kamala. I'm sorry. I never, I never know how I'm supposed to say her name. So I always say it both ways. Cause we grew up uh, with the wrestler. I, we grew up yeah, with Kamala, did. the wrestler. And so for us to say Kamala is actually difficult. <laughs> I struggle with that. And, and yeah, exactly. Because like and Kamala, the wrestler was a horrible racist <laughs> like we dragged yeah, him out of totally. the jungle wild man trope <laughs> totally and so i definitely don't you know i don't want to be caught mispronouncing in that way but anyway yeah no she i don't think she, i mean she she is inscrutable to me kamala oh. harris is absolutely like anti-charisma you oh. know what i mean <laughs> in every i remember when she we were in the middle of the pandemic and when she gave her speech at the dnc the whole fucking thing was me, 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 me. We, I, I don't care. Like, I, what are you going to do about wages? What are you going to do about unions? What are you going to do about foreign policy? It was just me, 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 me. But to your point on Biden, look, I actually take the polar opposite view on that because I think they'll roll out his fucking carcass if they have to. Because who's going to take his place? Like you said, Kamala's objectively worse in every single poll, in every single measurable way, with every single subjective characteristic of a good politician. And Mayor Pete also is horrendous. That's the other one that there's rumblings about. You know, Bernie's going to be roughly 197 at the time. Like, so who's going to take? I, I, I don't know who would take his place. They would put his carcass out there, I think, before anything else. Beto. It's Beto, man. Beto or Buzz. No, I hate, I, I hate Beto. Um, no, uh, yeah, I, I, I worry about like is is Biden capable of doing another three years, you know, and, or two years and change? Is he is capable he, of surviving? Is, like, is he as they well not not just surviving, but like as they every time this dude speaks, it's like horrible dementia gaff after gaff after gaff after gaff. He's like a like he, he like that whole thing in Poland where he. You know, just basically like called for regime change right, and yep. mm-hmm. had to be corrected by the White House. Isn't he the White House? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's ridiculous to me that uh, and and I don't even know how they contextualize that either. Putin's a butcher that needs to be, you know, he keep for the love of God, this man cannot stay in power. Well, he didn't mean that. You know, he he meant metaphorically. Yeah, it, uh, whatever. His- he was like, he said, I'm not walking anything back, but also we never changed our policy and it's not regime change. So mm. wait, that, that doesn't, it's like a massive contradiction. I, that makes yeah, absolutely I mean, no sense. So he's just, he's off script every time, uh, you know, he doesn't have a teleprompter in front of him and it's not a tightly controlled environment. Anytime he talks to the press, he says something off-putting or weird or nonsensical. And uh, I just don't know, like... Like three more, three more years almost of the first, uh, you know, presidency, and then he's going to get a like four more. Like I, if he, like I, I don't know, I, I feel like there's a catch twenty two for Democrats because there just is nobody 
that they have put in the spotlight and there's nobody in the wings, in my opinion. I was trying to figure it out the other day on one of my hideology streams. I was You know what their best uh, their best bet is? Their best bet is like in two thousand eight, Obama seemingly came out of nowhere and then ended up winning the primary and winning the presidency. Their best bet is that somebody who right now we don't think about, we don't know about but is waiting in the wings, somebody like Raphael Warnock or something, he decides he wants to run and he somehow captures the imagination of the nation. That's the best they could possibly hope for. But I mean, that's a fucking long shot. You need heaven and earth to come together in order for that to happen. And like you said, it's Biden or Kamala or Pete. And it's like, Jesus fucking Christ, not in a million years. Is that the solution? That's more of the problem. I hear, I hear whisperings on the wind and I want to know, because you're a politically savvy guy, you're tuned into all this. I want to hear. I want to know if you hear the same whisperings. I'm not saying it's a it's a strong note on the wind, but I hear whisperings. Hillary. Oh my God. It okay. So she seems like she's starting to kind of like do more interviews, position herself a little bit. And she keeps she's demurring. She's going like, oh no no no, I'm not running. Which you know, in political speak, is yes, I'm I'm definitely going to probably maybe think about running. In my opinion, I don't think she's done. And she's so, got so much influence at the DNC. So I uh, largely agree with your take. Recently, I did have to alter it, though, because I was following all the little developments. Like there'd be one little article here in like the Wall Street Journal or one over here in the Washington Post. And it would be like, we think Hillary, maybe Hillary's the right way to go now. Maybe it's Hillary Clinton's time. And so there were all these little things being dropped. Now, I actually, Crystal and I had a disagreement about this. Uh, Because my my thinking was the only reason these articles are being written is because the people who are in Hillary's camp are like dropping the hints and going to places and saying, hey, just so you know, maybe you want to maybe she's thinking about it. Maybe we're going to get back involved. And so that's why they were writing the article. She didn't think that Crystal thought it was like almost wishful thinking on the part of Republicans where that's who they want to run against. So they're trying to make her the thing. So I do think she's thinking about it. I do think she's intrigued by it. But she did come out recently. She was asked point blank when she was on MSNBC if she was going to run again. And she did say definitively no. So I covered that and said, "Okay, look, I went from thinking like there's a 60 percent chance she runs. Now I'm going to knock it all the way back down to like 30 percent. But 30 percent is 30 percent. And I mean, like if imagine Biden passes away, Kamala is still polling at like negative 80 percent. Mayor Pete, same thing. And then like there's no she could easily just pop in and be like, remember me, guys. And that would be a disaster. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, imagine the rematch, oh. the, the, the literal Hillary Trump rematch, either way that that goes, it's going to be, it's going to be a shit show of epic oh. proportions. It's going to be, I don't even know. I don't even know how to quantify it. So I, I think it's possible. I, I I'm probably with you. I don't think that it's a guarantee that we're going to see Hillary come up out of the crypt and give it one last go, but I know she's salty. Mm. I know she's got all the, you know, everybody knows the the, the Clintons uh, hold a lot of sway in the DNC. They got, yep. They're part of the power structure there. And so if she wants it, I think she'll get it. And it, it'll depend. It'll depend on, you know, how things develop. But I will need, uh, there's just not, no good, there's no good options. And that's really sad to me as mm. a leftist, mm-hmm. not a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. That there's nobody, you know what I mean? Even the people that started to look like, like I kind of followed uh, AOC's uh, candidacy and her her uh, political career with a little bit of interest. I, I saw a charisma in her that I thought might be a good 
you know, replacement for Bernie, who's now 80,000 years old. And we can't just, you know, I, I really thought that she might be able to step into that role. And I've, I, I don't, I, I don't know how you feel about it. I feel like she's been pretty disappointing. Um, watching her get dressed down by Nancy Pelosi on that like C-SPAN footage was like one of the most disheartening fucking things ever. Yeah. Flipping her you Iron know. Dome vote. Remember that? Flipping yeah. the or like the extra yeah. funding for Israel or whatever it was at the last minute. No, I I totally agree with you. I uh I, I don't think she has the chops to carry the torch. I really don't. And that's a really sad state of affairs because at one time perhaps she did. You know, I remember, I don't yeah. think I've ever told this story publicly, but I remember back when uh I was with Justice Democrats and so was Jenk Uger and uh AOC was one of the original Justice Democrats. She was actually on the board. It was myself, Jenk, Shoikat, uh, Chakrabarti, and um, AOC. So we were on the board and mm -hmm. I remember the day, do you remember the day that the hit piece came out against Jank Uger where they dug up his blog post from like 1997 or whatever the fuck it was. Oh yeah. And he's got a bunch yeah, of like yeah. politically incorrect jokes in there where he said, m making fun of himself saying he can't get laid. He says like, well, obviously the genes of women are flawed because they don't want to sleep with me more. Like he made a joke right. that was like a sexist joke, but it was obviously like sarcastic. Well, I remember, sure. and there were other things in there too, of, uh, along the same vein. I remember AOC at the time, she's actually the one who first contacted me about it when the news broke and, you know, there, were, there was basically like a staff mutiny where they were like, he goes or we go. And I remember thinking like, oh, fuck, why are we going to put out this brush fire? She calls me and right. I remember sh her position was like, you know, uh, basically on the side of Jank of like, look, he helped build the thing and he he put together some of the ideas and and he should be on the board and she wanted to like look at the staff and be like guys relax listen to the explanation it's okay but you know i think of aoc today or at least the public face she would put out there today if the same scandal happened and i think she's lost on the identity battlefield like many leftists you know where yeah they're much more interested in um separating people out and judging harshly than they are building any sort of solidarity and focusing on the economic stuff, the union stuff, the higher wages, foreign policy stuff, like the issues that really matter and bring everybody together. You know, I, I think that that's a that's such an easy trap for leftists to fall into. And oftentimes they do. And I think that the results are disastrous because we're never going to win unless we can fucking overlook like I, I don't care about purity of character. I care about purity of policy. So I don't care if somebody in, in the movement was a criminal who went to prison and then reformed themselves and now they're out. I'm not going to cancel them over some, some crime they committed. So why the fuck would I cancel them over a bad joke from 1997? You know what I'm saying? And unfortunately, yeah. many people don't think like that. Many people think like if you, anything is impure about your character or something you've said or something you've tweeted or whatever, that's it. You're done. You're out. You're not, you're not one of the real leftists anymore. And I hate that. I'm a union leftist. Me too. I was raised in a in a union household, my dad was the president of local number 254, Glass Molders, Pottery, Plastics, Allied Workers. It's an AFL-CIO union. I spent, you know, a good chunk of my childhood because child care was one of the things that they were fighting for uh, in the union. They didn't have it, so I got to go to union meetings. And, man, thinking back on that, I'm so glad that happened to me. I'm so glad I was given the opportunity to see real direct action because I would be hopeless right now. Absolutely hopeless for the future had I not been given that example. 
the beautiful collaboration of people setting aside all the bullshit that you just talked about. I don't care what your political position is on uh, this identity-based issue. I care about what puts Turkey on my table and yours besides. Mm. That kind of coming together of people and that willingness to set aside things and actually get things done is so at the core of my advocacy nowadays. Um, you know, and, and it, it does my heart good to read these stories of unions asserting themselves. I'm glad that uh, uh, James Hoffa was finally supplanted and maybe the Teamsters might show up and start getting rowdy again, which is what they're good at, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I love I love direct action. I love union action. I'm a, I'm, my, my beating heart is a, a union heart. I actually attended the longest union protest in history, the Frontier, uh, the Frontier Hotel protest in Vegas. No shit. It went on for like six years. I was there. I walked the line for a couple of weeks with my parents. And that, sh- that gives you an idea. My parents worked at a glass plant that made beer bottles. Okay. They had literally nothing to do with the hospitality industry in Las Vegas, other than people drank their beer there. Right. But there was no direct connection. They showed up anyway. Unions from all over the nation showed up to get those people that concession. And that's what it's going to take. That's 100% right. No, you're 100% right. I, I remember, I forget where I watched you do the rant, but you gave a phenomenal rant about solidarity where you were talking about your parents and their experience and how, you know, when you were growing up, you saw one person might have ultra conservative views, but they're part of the union. And so they stand in solidarity with like their gay black coworker who's also standing there to fight for higher wages. It was a phenomenal rant. And I was like, this is literally exactly what we need. This is exactly what we need in this country. It's the only thing that really get shit done. You know, you got to over, right. who cares? I don't care who you voted for. I don't care, uh, you know, what things happened in your past. I don't care whatever kind of weird beliefs you might have. If you're standing right here in solidarity with me and we're agreeing on this issue of trying to get childcare, or trying to get healthcare, or trying to get higher wages, that's all it's about, man. But unfortunately that you just yeah. don't see that, that mindset is not pervasive anymore. And it kills me. It kills me that that's the case because that's, I'm, you know, I'm trying. I know you're trying to like bring that back, but, you know, just for this conversation alone, I'm sure you and I will get shit where people will act like, you know, class, oh, yeah. class reductionist leftists who are part of the problem. It's like, okay, well, if I'm part of the fucking problem, then congrats on having a little group of like 0.07% of the population where you could jerk each other off about how morally pure you are where you get nothing done. You know what? I'd go even a step farther. I don't think that what we're doing is class reductionist at all. And I think that people that want to treat gender issues and racial issues as if they're some sort of an enclave are the ones that are really doing more damage than good. Are you familiar with Daryl Davis? Yes. You probably are. You probably, yes. Yeah. So Daryl, yeah, for those in your audience, maybe that have never been uh, exposed to him, Daryl Davis is a black guy that basically spent a good chunk of his life um, getting to know people that were literally in the Ku Klux Klan. People like, you know, we're talking about the worst of the worst when it comes to American racism. People that were responsible for lynchings and horrible church burnings and all kinds of nasty shit all throughout the Jim Crow era and before. And and he would just sit down one-on-one with these people. At, honestly, great personal danger to himself sometimes. Mm. And through... His example of just being everything that they thought a black person couldn't be, you know, because when you're talking about that base level racism, 
where these people are raised in a white area and they're very rarely even exposed to a black person. You know what I mean? The, the idea is, oh, they're all animals. They're all stupid. They're all ignorant. And Daryl Davis is just a, like a well-spoken dude, you know? And he would sit down and just talk and listen to these people. And as a result of that, that one guy has like what, what I don't remember what number it is. It's like a hundred clan robes or something that he's just basically skinned off of these guys that couldn't be in it anymore. They, they were confronted with the hypocrisy of what they did. And the only way that happened was that he was willing to sit down and talk to these guys, not exclude them and throw them out. That's contact theory or contact hypothesis. It's a psychological precept that's been studied. And so when I talk about union labor and people that are conservative and people that are liberal coming together to, to mutual benefit, that's how people's stupid racist preconceptions get challenged. Mm. That's how people's homophobic conceptions get challenged because all of a sudden you're sitting across, you might hate that gay guy that works with you, but when you're at the union meeting, you need his vote just as much as everybody else's. Mm. So you're, you, there's a, there's a level of connection that, exp and, and look, when you stand the line with somebody, you do a protest action with somebody and you're putting yourself in harm's way. Anti-union thugs might show up. The cops might show up, right? There's a different level of human connection that just doesn't happen when people are just separated in two, two rabid groups flinging fucking uh, ad hominems at each other like it was going out of style. It's like, right. I, I'm not talking about like giving deference to racists or crazy, you know, fucking Trump people. I'm talking about opening your mind to the idea that those people work at the same shops you do. You know, yes. they work at the same factories you do. And yes. if you can find some mutual ground with them, you can tear them away from this stupid fucking Trumpism, this nothing populism that just leads to more of the same. Yeah. And it's not to your point. It's not about conceding on on certain issues to them. If that's not what it's about at all. Like you said, if you hold hands in solidarity on other issues, you're beginning to break down the walls of resistance in their mind where now they're open to other ideas. So I'm not saying you bite your tongue if you have more no. socially progressive ideas on, on a variety of issues. It's you wear down those defenses and plant a seed and get that seed to grow. You know, I believe just as much as anybody like the drug war is fucking racist as fuck and all the data backs it up you know it's 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 at, well, it, it, we don't even need the data who was it it's uh ehrlichman uh in the nixon administration when the nixon tapes came out part of those tapes is literally a conversation or no 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 maybe it was a maybe it was a uh, an interview that one of his in ehrlichman gave i can't remember but it's he literally admitted it I ju we just did a deep fat fried show on Nixon and his presidency and I could go look it up. But one of them, one of the, one of his inside circle gave a whole account of how the drug war started. That's right. And they and said, look, we don't have, we don't have a problem. Uh, we don't have a problem with the drugs. It's the people that are using them. It's the hippies and it's the blacks and that's it. And this was an excuse for us to turn the long arm of the law against the people that are against us politically. That's basically like a, a, a paraphrasing of what he said. So it's on, as far as the data is concerned, it doesn't even come to that because one of the architects of this shit just basically admitted it was made to suppress, you know, political dissidents and black people. That's right. And by the way, now the most recent polling I saw was I think 70% of the country now wants to legalize marijuana too. 70%. It, 
that's a foregone conclusion too. A lot of anybody that's opposing it at this point is just like the last time I looked at the map, there are more states that have some path to legally smoking marijuana, whether it's just medical or whatever, than there are states that outright prohibited it. Uh, prohibit it. So this wave of states that doing these like, and that's how it started too. A lot of states are decriminalizing too. Uh, because they just can't afford, they're bordered by states that are all legal. And then, isn't that one of the absurdities of the United States? I guess it's maybe a necessary absurdity for it to function the way it does. But the, it always wigs me out as a Californian. You know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here enjoying a, my morning joint as we're talking. And uh, you know, there's a place I could go uh, on the planet where I could put my foot. You know, on one side I'm in California, on the other side I'm in Utah. And if I smoke a joint, I'm going to jail. I'm half going to jail, I guess. I don't know. You know what I mean? It just the absurdity of the difference of laws as you just drive along the same interstate highway is yeah. going to eventually collapse any of this. And it, plus the tax benefit. I mean, all these southern states are drooling, you know, looking at all the sin tax money that's rolling in in Colorado and California, that's, Washington, Oregon. That's so true. And I feel like ideologically, there aren't many people who really have this sincere belief of like, well, you know, states' rights should override federal law and let the states be the laboratories of democracy. And and they actually believe that. Like, I remember Antonin Scalia, this, this drove me crazy, but there was one, this such colossal hypocrisy because when it came to the issue of a border wall, I remember there was a Supreme Court case, I think it was Arizona, wanted to basically build their own border wall. And Antonin Scalia argued, you absolutely should let them build their own border wall because if you don't allow them to do that, like, what are you saying? The state doesn't have any rights? Like, they don't have any rights? They can't make their own sure. decisions as a state? Of course they should be able to do that. But then in marijuana cases, he flips completely and says the opposite. When it was like California legalizing weed, he was like, no, 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 no. Federal law overrides state law. So the federal law says no weed. So California and any state that wants to do weed shouldn't be allowed to do it. So my point is like, almost nobody really has that principled belief of like, oh, states' rights. Because, and I'm, and I'm sure you know the history of this better than anybody, but like, you know, it was just the cover story that was given to why Southern states wanted to keep segregation. It was like- Absolutely. We need to have the freedom to make our own decisions in our states. And that means if we want to have segregation, the federal government can fuck right off. It was like a intellectual veneer over what the true purpose was. And we saw this recently. There was some Republican, I think a Republican senator from Indiana said, now he walked this back after because he realizes how monstrous it was. But he said in an interview, he was like, um, yeah, states should determine if they want, if states want to ban interracial marriage, they should have the right to ban interracial marriage because he feels the same way about abortion. Like, oh, states want to ban abortion. they should. Be able so it's like, yeah, it's all, I think everybody who's reasonable agrees that like, as a matter of principle, should you have the freedom to put in your body, whatever you want to put in your body, as long as you're not hurting anybody else? Yes. Okay, well then at the federal level, marijuana should be legal. It shouldn't be a question for the states. I mean, it's not a question in, you know, most of the Western world, you know, it's just one of those other things that America is just dragging its ass on health care, uh, you know, the right to fucking, like you said, put anything in your body that you deem worthy and your as long as you're not hurting anybody, go, go for it. Um, and that's theme like, look, I've known a lot of rednecks. I grew up around a lot of conservative folk and I grew up around a lot of potheads too. So 
it's there's a hypocrisy in it as well. Um, I think at the level of Antonin Scalia and at the level of you know a lot of federal politicians who keep pushing for you know some kind of action against these states that have legalized marijuana, I think it's just remnants of what the beginnings of this war on drugs were. I think they realize, like everybody does, that the people that suffer most from you know heavy enforcement of drug law are uh, you know people of color mm. and it's still rooted in that kind of racist desire to keep a, a boot on people of color. And it, they still want to be able to wield it that way. And, uh, you know, slowly but surely, I think that's changing and hopefully, you know, it won't be too many more years until America just kind of like gets a, gets a leftist with the balls to just deschedule the drug. You know what I mean? And leave it to the States. My favorite is when you see a bumper sticker on a car, the thin blue line, which is the pro police bumper sticker right next to a don't tread on me bumper sticker. I'm always like, yeah, what? That's a total contradiction. Like you have to pick one of the two. You can't, you can't say don't tread on me. And then you're pro police. It's like, what? But to your point, a lot of that stems from, I think probably latent racial animus. Um, yeah. So, because we were talking about religion earlier, this popped in my head. I wanted to see you if you see if you had followed this at all. But did you see, um, you know, Dave Rubin announced that he was having a baby or, or two babies with his husband. And uh, I did see that. Yeah. You did see that. And and you saw the, the backlash that he got from his own audience. Of course. I mean, what was he expecting? You can't spend your whole career just kind of demurely tip, tap dancing around your gayness and then share a wonderful gay moment with everybody and expect everybody to just kind of like, you know, uh, I feel bad for him in some ways. Like I have a baseline empathy for all human beings, no matter what they've said or done, you know? And I, I think it's kind of nasty that he's in a position, um, where he has to do that, has to go through, you know, like have his, you know, a happy moment for a couple having a couple of babies, um, and that has to be an ugly, nasty thing that his inbox is filled with hatred about every fucking day. I don't love that for him, but he also put himself there. He's the one that uh, has ignored the hypocrisy of snuggling up to people who hate him for forever. And now they're just letting they're reminding him like, yeah, we hate you. Do, do you think um, he genuinely thought because he he had mentioned this a number of times on a number of shows where he said like, I don't really see a problem anymore with conservatives and how they feel about gay people. Do you think he genuinely felt that way, which is why he like almost naively announced this expecting to get support? Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the ways that he had self deluded himself for as long as he has, uh, into, you know, remaining, uh, politically aligned with people who are openly hostile towards his homosexuality was telling himself that that's all just a ruse. Oh, the left just tries to paint everybody's anti-gay. I've never met a blah, blah. He's kind of closed himself off to it. And he really did think that people were going to be like, you know, it could be, I saw the way he presented it. You know, he was proud and happy. He looked like a, a dad, you know, that was announcing to his audience. I'm never going to have a kid, so you'll never see it out of me. But, uh, you know, when you when you have an audience of people, you want to announce the happy event. You know, hey, I'm having a kid. And he, I think he naively thought, based on this premise that he's run on for his whole life, that the people that hate him were going to go like, oh, well, you're with us. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. Milo said he should be, uh, him and his husband should be executed, which is hilarious because Milo says he's ex-gay. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm sure he's, oh, yeah. you know, 
dreaming about dicks on the daily. And then uh, Mark Dice also was tweeting at like other Blaze hosts because uh, Ruben's part of the Blaze. And he was like, you're going to you're not going to speak out against this, bro. Why aren't you? Get, he, oh, because he's on your team. Well, this is degeneracy. This is wrong. Some people were tweeting memes comparing, you know, a gay couple having kids with like slavery. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 crazy. The the and I I hope honestly that maybe it makes uh, Dave Rubin confront a little bit of his own political hypocrisy and uh, maybe he'll start advocating for some things that aren't directly against everybody uh, that needs protecting in the world and needs uh, you know uplifting in the world. Uh, I don't know. Um, knowing Dave Rubin, he'll probably just soldier right on like it never happened. You know, yeah, that's- I think that he's I think he sold his soul a long time ago and he knows what pays the bills and he's just going to keep on keeping on, man. Yeah, well, um, I, I knew Dave back when he was with the Young Turks and he was, I think, the only person I've ever had a conversation with in our you know, general sphere doing roughly what we all do, where he said to me, it was very bizarre. He was like, um, so what's your end goal? TV? Like, what, what, are you, what are you trying to, what are you trying to get to? What are you, what are you trying to do? Get on TV? Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, what? Like, no, I'm, I actually enjoy what I'm doing for what it is. I enjoy the process of it, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very, it always seemed like he's very career-oriented, and how do I get to this point? How do I get to that point? It's like, I don't care what gets me fame as long as I get the fame. So, and now, you know, you're seeing, like, a negative manifestation of that, because... It's kind of sad for his kids. Uh, Like, oh yeah, his kids are. If he doesn't repudiate this shit, you know, then his kids, when they get of age, I mean, every kid is on the internet now, so they're gonna see their dad's audience saying horrible things about their their parents and horrible things about you know them. Mm. And uh, I don't. As a dad, how do you reconcile that with, you know? making money. I don't know. I think Dave Rubin would make a ton of money. People love a, uh, an, an arc, you know, they love a, Oh, this was my, I, I was a Republican, but then I came out, uh, you know, with my, I had, I had children and I saw the hatred inherent in it. Now I'm a Democrat. Yeah. So flip back. People so love that. He flipped one way. Now flip back the other way. You're saying, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Why not, man? <laughs> if it worked one time, why won't, why can't you, why can't it be a boomerang, man? That would be interesting to see, especially because so many people on the left just look at him like, we know what you are. Like, it's so shameless and open that I wonder how well it would work. I mean, I guess for like a brand new audience, it might work. Like, maybe some Zoomers coming up who never heard of him before. You know what I mean? He'd have to manage it well. It would really have to be well managed from a PR standpoint. Mm. Um, uh, From a PR standpoint, he'd really have to do it right. He would have to engineer some kind of argument where somebody insults him or his kids and he has kind of like a, like a real, a real moment. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like where mm-hmm. he gets, he gets confrontational. He gets angry and he says, you don't say that about my children. I'm leaving here. This is disgusting. And he gets up and he walks off. And and then for a few days, people are all speculating like, Oh my goodness. Is Dave, Ru- what is Dave Rubin having a come to Jesus moment? And then he can come out and say, look guys, I just spent the last couple of days really thinking, I'm sorry. I have, I've been gone from my show. Um, but I have to be real with you. I can't do this anymore, man. I cannot, I cannot allow this hatred. You know, if he did it yeah. right, if he managed the whole up and down of it. I think, big, he could, I think he could probably make some money doing it. To me, the big red flag about him was that it wasn't like, cause I'm, you, I'm sure 
you see this all the time. I see this all the time. I mean, it's happened to me a number of times where like, sure, on one issue here or there, you might end up evolving or flipping, changing your mind, whatever. And, you know, three issues, four issues, whatever. Have a field day, maybe as many as five. But the thing about Dave is that with his original transition from like why I left the left guy to being a right winger, like he changed his views on fucking everything except gayness. You know what I mean? Like, and right. everything. And I always feel like, like, Homeboy was 40 when he did that. Like, usually you only see those sorts of evolutions or, you know, de-radicalizations or radicalizations. You see them from younger people and usually over an extended period of time. You don't see, like, you know, he woke up one day and was like, hey, Rush Limbaugh's right about everything. Right. The Bill Maher method. Bill Maher has been slowly but surely mm. morphing into a social conservative like over the last two or three years with his like anti-woke nonsense and like, you know, uh, lionizing these like Republicans. I mean, he's always been a, a guy that was pretty cozy with uh, the right wing, even yeah. being seen he went, as like a, a, a leftist. He went from uh, from supporting Bernie Sanders in 2016 to supporting Amy Klobuchar in 2020. So I love Oof. when he said recently, like, I didn't change, the left changed. And it's like, if you go from Bernie to Klobuchar, motherfucker, you changed. <laughs> That's totally <Yes>. different. <laughs> yeah, there, there's not even a, a comparison to be made there. Yeah. So um, let speak. Is, oh, go, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. I was just going to ask, like, do you, do you think there's any chance, like we were talking about, like, possibilities like uh, Elizabeth Warren, Klobuchar, do you think those names are just like completely and utterly impotent against any anything the Republicans will throw? Um, that's a great question. I mean, we already saw the Klobuchar, Klobuchar ran, got obliterated. Elizabeth Warren ran, got obliterated, literally worse by the day. She showed she has like no ability to uh, evolve properly in terms of campaign strategy. She regressed and got worse and worse. So I think they're largely hopeless. Um, yeah, I think most of them are hopeless. I think even a generic re Republican would be a lot of the Democrats now. But this actually leads to the thing I was going to ask you, which is, and last time TJ was on on this show, we him and I talked about it because this is a topic that I find endlessly fascinating. And him and I, uh, I think, are more in agreement than me and you on this one, but I'm curious to hear you flesh out your thoughts. Every time an election rolls around, right, and you're presented with, what's the old South Park jokes, shit sandwich versus giant turd? No. Giant douche. Shit, giant douche giant versus douche. shit sandwich or something like that. Um, you know, I actually, I can actually see solid, like, philosophical arguments for both. I could see good arguments for, look, I, you're partaking in the problem if you vote at all for either one of these assholes, but I could also see a good argument from like a utilitarian perspective of like, do the least amount of damage possible. So if you're, if you genuinely believe that even if somebody's going to be 12% better than the other one, then you sort of suck it up and vote for them given the options. I know you're much more on the side of like, look, man, you can't play this fucking game anymore. So don't do it. So give, give everybody your thoughts on why like lesser evil voting is indeed horrendous. Um, a lot of it's just personal and, you know, I, I feel like I've had the experience my entire political life, which was I was I was faced most of the time with somebody that I genuinely didn't want to vote for. But it was the lesser of two evils. And I, I really, you know, I'm 42 now and 
I really did some soul searching on it. And I, I started to ask myself, like, what am I being asked to do here? And what's the, what, what's the long-term, and I mean long-term over my lifetime, what's the outcropping of this? Because I'm not the only one doing this. As I would talk to people that I knew, and then once I got into the online space, talk to people online, I found a lot of leftists that were just disgusted with the candidates that were thrown up, um, disgusted with the people that were running, disgusted with the output of DNC politicians. Um, but all of them felt like, oh, you know, well, we got to get, and I, and I started to look at that over the course of time. And what it's done is it's, it's led to like the erosion of our infrastructure, the erosion of workers' rights and union rights in this country, the, the rise of robber barons and union busting again, the loss of, uh, you know, like wages are just like versus inflation is flat for like 40 years. You know, um, no health care after all this time. Uh, what has it bought us? Like, what has doing this little, like, because I understand, dude, I'm willing to admit Biden may be, I don't know, 8 to 10% less evil than Trump is or whatever it is, however you come. I really don't. That's one of the problems I have with lesser of uh, two evilism is I don't understand the calculus that goes on. To how do you decide how how lesser evil this guy is? Um, and really, whose perspective are you looking at it from? If you're looking at it from the perspective of, a, of an American, you might be able to make some arguments, but somebody in the third world, somebody mm. in the global south, what changed? Like, because Trump isn't there anymore for them, the, the most exploited and the most vulnerable people on this planet, nothing, you know, and, and how, how long can I just make a decision here, a cynical kind of like, well, whatever, I hate this old fucking vampire, but... I'm going to vote for him anyway, and I'm going to campaign for him anyway, because whatever, it's Trump or him. Um, it just, I really don't think you have to do that. And, but one of the things that I get endless amounts of shit for is my position that the DNC is really the enemy here. If you're a leftist, the DNC is the mechanism that keeps, that, that kind of like uh, solidifies the constant shifting of the Overton window to the right, you know, the, the ratchet effect. And if we don't come up with like, and I think the justice Dems, you being so intimately involved with that was kind of a movement towards that, but with the idea of working within the party. Now, at, seeing the arc of how that went, do you think that that's possible? Uh, I don't, but I think that however not possible that is, it's even less possible to do a third party route because what a lot of people don't know is that when we were considering starting Justice Democrats, it's not like we didn't consider the third party idea. In fact, that was like the primary idea first. And when, but when you're actually going to do it, like it comes time to actually dot the I's and cross the T's and file the paperwork and do this and do that, what you realize is you hit a fucking wall at 100 miles an hour because. However rigged it is against progressives and leftists in the Democratic Party, it's even more rigged to try to start some sort of third party, which is why, by the way, it's not like you haven't seen genuine good faith efforts to, like, do this the third party route. I mean, there's been a number of different examples. I'm, back in the day, even Trump sure. was around with what, what was it called, like the Reform Party or something back in the day in like the 90s or the 2000s. That was one example. Of course, you have the Green Party is another example, which they did better than almost anybody else in terms of getting ballot access. But I think they only got like 48 states or something like that. They have ballot access. Um, and then, of yeah, course, you, you saw have the uh, 
libertarians. Libertarians. Right? You know, you have the People's Party, which, you know, in within the past few years has like totally imploded. They, you know, these we're talking about a track record of abysmal failure. And it's not because uh, the the people trying it are bad people. I mean, I guess in some instances they might be bad people, but by and large, people generally mean well and they're trying to create that kind of change that you and I are talking about. But it's like, here's the point. If you're going to do the third party route, which I'm not against in principle, you first have to unrig the process, the third party route. So in other words, you have to find a way to get the ballot access, to do ranked choice voting so people don't look at these voters like, look at these parties like they're spoilers and these politicians like they're spoilers. And once you, and by the way, credit to Andrew Yang, I have a million disagreements with him, but that is what he's trying to do with his, what's, what is he called? Oh, forward party, where one of his big things is like, we got to do ranked choice voting first, because I think what he understands is ain't no fucking forward party candidate has any chance in hell unless you first do ranked choice voting and first get ballot access for everybody. So I guess the only the reason why we chose the path we chose was because it's like you're asking me, do I want to run a hundred yard dash or do I want to run a fucking marathon? And I said, I'd much rather run the hundred yard dash. I got to run a lot less distance. So that's why we tried it. Now, having said that, and this is where a lot of people don't hear me when I say these things. I feel like, yeah, we own all the failures of Justice Democrats. Like, in every way, shape, and form that they came up short, you're damn right it was, it was bad and it was a fuck up. And it, it was a problem from the inception because I always talk about this. Well, we didn't vet for, which it's, I don't know how you can vet for it, but we should have found some way to do it. We didn't vet for, like, leadership qualities. We just vetted for, like, okay, who's gonna, who has the right policy ideas? You do? Great. You're in. But what we need is somebody who not only has the right policy ideas, but knows how to do strategy, knows how to do, because the whole idea was, let's make it like a left tea party. And they didn't use any left tea party tactics. The only time I saw them do it, to be fair and to their credit, is when they said there were, I think, only six of them, which is pathetic. It should have been way more. Only six of them actually stuck by the original deal on Build Back Better, where they were like, we're not going to vote for your fucking shitty traditional infrastructure bill unless you also do Build Back Better, which has elder care, which has universal pre-K, which has expanded child tax benefit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was like one instance of like, oh shit, you did the right thing. That's wonderful. But they weren't doing it before that and they weren't throwing around their weight. They weren't playing politics. To this day, the thing that I'm calling on them to do, get 12 of you, 15 of you, if any of you have balls, if any of you are leaders, for the love of God, go meet with Joe Biden and say, you know what? You're not getting a single bill through Congress because we're going to fucking block it unless you break out your executive order pen and legalize marijuana right now. Do it right now. Abolish student loan debt right now. And they're not doing it. Now, I don't think that means, you know, it is literally impossible to do it right. I just think we didn't get the right people who were going to do it right. Like, I guarantee you, if I was in Washington, D.C., if I had run for office and I was in Washington, D.C., I would have done everything in my fucking power to rally 12 of us, have a clique of 12 people, and we're going to fucking go at them like nobody's business. And I don't care if the media smears me day in and day out and digs up my old tweets and makes fun of me relentlessly or whatever. So I'm not fucking budging unless you legalize marijuana, unless you eliminate student loan debt. So uh, the thing is, I think it's largely failed, um, but... I just think the other path would have been an even bigger failure a lot quicker. So that's my general sure. take on it. I I wonder how you would how how would you vet for someone's I guess that is a leadership quality. How would you vet for someone's ability to resist the lure of joining the status quo? Because you, I mean, we saw it play out in real time with the Iron Dome flip and yep. Pelosi basically just dressing down AOC. That's, 
it was it was I can imagine what was said in that conversation was something like, look, your this is the, your your participation as a political entity is on the line here. This is not just a, a vote. If you if the if you vote uh, no on this, you are forever going to be have a scarlet letter on you in this party. You're not going to move up the halls of power. Your little ascent is over. You know what I mean? I can just yep. imagine Pelosi is such a political entity that it was something like that. And she caved to it. Yep. She didn't have the balls to stick her finger up and say, fuck you. Yep. You know, something needs to change. We need somebody different. We need a different way. And it's not your old fucking corporate friendly way. You know, just anything. And I'm totally with you on that. People forget there's such a slim margin that they mm. could effectively hold up every fucking piece of legislation that comes out of anything. They That's could right. It. They could hold it hostage and say, my vote on this is contingent on anything like you said. My vote on this is contingent on uh, an immediate canceling of student loan debt, immediate descheduling of marijuana. You know, uh, and there's a number of other things that uh, Biden could do with a stroke of his pen. Um, you know, and by uh, the way, immediate, like, he would do it. He would do it because if you give him a list of 20 fucking executive orders and say, I'm not bending unless you do every one of these, you know what happens? You get a meeting with him and he says, look, Jack, I can't do 20, but maybe I'll do 10 of them or maybe I'll do seven right. of them. That's what would happen because he's a wheeler and dealer. He's an old backslapping politician and that's what they do. And so if he, if Manchin can throw his weight around and hold up fucking anything under the sun, you could play the same game from the left and they don't do it. And to answer your question, unfortunately... I don't have a good answer, which is part of the problem is that the only thing I would know how to go off of in terms of vetting leadership qualities is like their experience and their history. Like what have you actually done that shows like maybe they were affiliated with some sort of protest movement or whatever, and they've genuinely showed balls previously. Outside of that, I don't know what to go off of other than like intuition. You know, obviously the candidates sure. don't take the, the corporate money, so they're not corrupt. But then the other more important thing is like, okay, well, do you have the moxie to like actually take the incoming fire also from the media? Because that's another big part of the problem is that a lot of these people are they're narcissists and they do not like negative attention. They cannot stand negative attention. And so they don't know, to your point, not just put their finger middle finger up at Pelosi and say, fuck that shit. I'm doing what I know is right. They also can't put their middle finger up to the media. They want to be beloved by the media. But if you're being beloved by corporate media, you're doing something wrong. They're supposed to fucking hate you. Look how they treated Bernie Sanders yes. when Bernie was running for president. There's a reason why the Washington Post ran whatever it was, 12 negative articles within the course of uh, a day because they were like, oh, my God, this guy might actually do universal health care. We can't have that. We got to look out for the health insurance yeah. companies. So you should you should swim in their hatred. You should love their hatred. Just like FDR said, I welcome the hatred of the bankers. You should welcome the hatred of corporate media. And not a single one of them, Paul, welcomes the hatred of corporate media. Not a single one of them. And by the way. Like, there are little instances here and there of individual courage, like Ilhan Omar, for example. She recently, she was the one politician to stand up and say, I'm not in favor of sanctioning the entire Russian economy, including the oil and gas, because that hurts regular Russians, and regular Russians didn't do anything wrong. She was the only one to right. do it. What I want to do is take that moxie and have a group of 12 that can consistently do the right thing and throw their weight around. And it just hasn't come together in the way I wanted it to come together. And that's just sad. I, I think that the DNC is a fortress against that kind of movement. It will either subsume anybody that you throw at it or it will, uh, you know, make them irrelevant. It'll break up that that group. So even I do think Ilhan has been 
the most consistently willing to go out on a limb of the kind of justice dem groups. Uh, but you know, we don't, we don't need one Ilhan. We need 12 Ilhans, you know, and we need them all to be in lockstep because there've been times that Ilhan has not, you know, uh, stood up the way that I thought yeah, she should have. They've but, all uh, done that at one point or another. They've sure. all let us down, you know? And, but then they're, like I said, they're individual. And, and you can't, God. You can't really expect perfection out of people, but to me, the writing on the wall, to kind of bring it back to the original point, because I don't want people to think I'm trying to dodge out on your, your the, how we started this, which is why don't I vote and what's my position on that. Um, it, it, I, I think that the DNC in a broader sense has, has been the enemy of the Justice Dems from the very beginning, and they did everything that they could to manipulate those people and with promises and social status and, uh, you know, promises of committee placements and yada, yada, yada. And just knowing in this country too, that raising your status as a politician lets you charge more when you finally leave the life as a K street lobbyist. You know what I mean? The fact that that absurdity is not outright outlawed in this Mm -hmm. country is, is fucking insane to me, but you know that that's, you know, that's part of this. That's, that's part of what these people are, are, uh, hoping for and looking for. And, um, you know, it's, it, for, oh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to, I'm trying to collect my thoughts on this because it's all over the place, but I watched what they did to Bernie Sanders twice now. And yep. I hate how people on the left try and act like, oh, he just didn't have enough support. I fucking hate that. I hate that they want to ignore the use of superdelegacy in 2000, uh, what was it? Yeah. 12, 16th. Sorry. I'm, I'm a fucking boomer. Uh, <laughs> 2016. And then they want to ignore that just miracle pre super Tuesday dropout of yep. all of the DNC corporate aligned candidates as if that was all just done, you know, in a vacuum, just ridiculous, man. It was a slaughtering. It was, it was the DNC saying, yeah, you know, as popular as you are, you don't get to go any further. It's going to be Joe Biden. They coronated Joe Biden that day. Every last one of them dropped out, even like, and, and, and except for one, except for one, Elizabeth Warren stayed in mm. to siphon off just enough votes to make him non-competitive and then dropped out and, and endorsed, uh, you know, Joe Biden anyway. Yep. It was highly, <laughs> oh God, highly coordinated. And then the other thing is to further bolster your theory here. Look at what happened that last debate when it looked like Bernie was inevitable, when he basically won the first three and no candidate has ever won the first three and then gone on to lose. They had a debate. The entire debate was like, why do you love Cuba? I guess you're a communist. Why do you love Castro? Why did you say this thing in 1978? And the entire every candidate on stage was dropping elbows from the sky on Bernie Sanders face. And so you had everything come together. I mean, I forget what day I think I called it like Bloody Monday or so I think I called it Bloody Monday because I think it happened on a Monday where Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, that everybody dropped out and endorsed Biden. And like, to your point, Elizabeth Warren stayed in. It took all the king's horses and all the king's men to get Biden across the finish line. And yeah, one of the interpretations of that is like these fucking scumbags are always going to do everything in their power to come out on top. But the other view of that also is, well, they fucking needed all the king's horses and all the king's men to keep the hordes out of the gates this time, which is the only positive takeaway you could really have from that. But, but to get back to the main question, because again, this is something I struggle with. I know TJ struggles with it because he was, you know, him and I were really in agreement the last time we had this conversation. So in terms of how I actually act when it comes to voting for president and the lesser of two evils, um, 
I haven't been able to shake this idea of moral red lines, which is, look, in the case of Hillary, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, voted for the Iraq war. I think she is genuinely a war criminal as a result of that, as a result of what happened to Gaddafi when she was secretary of state. I think she belongs behind bars. Never mind, not to mention all the fucking endless corruption. I mean, I think I read an article one time. It's like right. her and Bill took over a billion dollars or something like that. So when I look at that, I say, I understand that she is, quote unquote, a lesser evil. I actually believe that in terms of the policies that, that she's genuinely in favor of. I think that if you're grading a test, maybe Trump gets a 12 percent and Hillary gets a 23 or whatever, just to give rough numbers here. But I couldn't shake the idea of moral red lines because I feel responsible for what somebody does when I vote for them, because I think this shit really matters. So if I vote for somebody, like I voted for Obama in 2008, and then you know what happened? Obama started droning innocent people, killing 90% the wrong people with those drones. And so when 2012 rolled around, I couldn't shake that. I kept thinking of those people who got obliterated by the drones, and I thought, what would they want me to do? And so I ended up voting for Jill Stein in 2012. Now, of course, you know, uh, I didn't vote for Hillary in the general in... um in 2016, of course, I voted for Bernie in the primary. And then this time around, when it came to Biden, it, the same moral questions came up as were there with Hillary. Because again, Joe Biden voted for the Patriot Act, voted for the Iraq war. This is a guy who, again, in my estimation, is a war criminal. Never mind being one of the biggest people who pushed the, um, uh, what's it called? Oh, the crime bill, where they, you know, fucking locking people up for nonviolent offenses left and right. I mean, so many I mean, lives are ruined. If you listen to him, if you listen to him, he wrote that bill, right? That's He's right. Like, I, I, so, I wrote the bill. So since I take this stuff seriously and I feel responsible for what the president does, I could I couldn't shake like my idealism, I guess you could say. And I said, look, I'm I'm willing to vote for somebody who I'm not totally in agreement with on everything, but I couldn't get over those moral red lines. And the thing about Biden was I genuinely wasn't convinced he would do even one policy that I really cared about. You know, I, and I did a whole segment on this. I listed here are the things I care the most about in the world in terms of policy. These are this is the list. Medicare for all, you know, uh, living wage, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I don't believe he's going to do any of these things. So it just felt like I can't bring myself to do it. However, <laughs> however, I also see the other side of the argument, especially now in retrospect, looking at it, because. I think it is genuinely true. You'd much rather have Biden pick a Supreme Court like Ketanji uh, Brown Jackson is way better than anybody fucking Trump would pick. Uh, the national, this is the point that Crystal always comes back to, the National Labor, labor Relations Board. If you have people in there picked by a Democratic president, they're much less hostile to labor than uh, if a Republican president picks them. So now we're seeing with all this, now we have all this mobilization around unions happening around the country that genuinely wouldn't be able to happen if we had the same people that Trump put in there at the National Labor Relations Board. And then the other thing is, I remember on election night, I actually really, like, I didn't think I would care that much, but on election night, I, I actually really fucking cared. And I was like, God damn it, I hope Biden <laughs> ekes this shit out. And so I was kind of surprised yeah. by my reaction because I was like, I didn't expect to feel that way. But then when the votes were rolling in and it's tight at the beginning, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. And then now looking back at it, the fact that Biden did right to repair, which was super important for farmers. That's something they've been asking for for a long time. Pulling out of Afghanistan, which is the fucking best thing he did, which he got the most bullshit for. Now, of course, he's since destroyed all that goodwill because now he's sanctioning Afghanistan and starving babies. So all the facts right. matter on that front. Uh, but when he raised the minimum wage for all federal workers and federal contractors to $15 an hour, like I can see little things where I'm like, 
I get, like, I can see the, the viewpoint of, like, no, seriously, do the least amount of damage possible. And so that's why, ultimately, I think, I don't know if I'm going to ever be able to shake my idealism and my moral red lines, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to do lesser evil votes when the evil is as evil as Biden and Hillary Clinton are. But I don't begrudge anybody who does do that vote because I, I can see the argument for it. I can see the logic for it. And I don't think it's some sort of moral failing because I'm sure, you know, there are plenty of people who take that view, like the idealist view, the, you know, don't vote for lesser evil view. And then they say, well, you know, and then they voter shame people who end up do making the lesser evil vote. And that I can't get on board with. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I'll be honest, I've engaged in a little bit of that on social media and stuff. Um, I don't mean to voter shame people, but there was like what one of the things that bothers me is that and I think that you're you kind of stand alone in this. And I know you catch endless amounts of shit for this, but it's one of the reasons why I've you know, I've always liked watching you. Uh, even if we don't agree politically, it's because if you take a stand on something, you fucking mean it. And nobody's going to bully you on social media. And nobody's going to cry enough to get you to change your position. If you believe something, you believe it. And, um, you know, I, I I saw a lot of people pushing real hard for Biden in a, in a very disingenuous way. Not coming at it from the perspective of, well, you know, he's a fucking piece of shit. But, right. You know, we yeah. got to do this, like really painting him as as if he was a whole lot different than Trump, which on some things he is. But on a lot of issues, he's just kind of hit pause. Like if you're uh, a mixed uh, a family of mixed immigration status, what's the fucking difference? There you know is I mean? none. You're right. There you're wasn't even, right. there wasn't even a pause under Trump, you know, and I grew up in an area of uh, central California, a little town called Madera. That was, you know, had a preponderance of migrant workers, just a farming area, you know, and um, those people, I have a natural kind of like uh, empathy for those people growing up around them and seeing what would happen to a family that got torn apart by ICE agents showing up, raids on people uh, just coming here to work because they were desperate. You know, it's just horrible to see that. And there's hasn't even been a pause in that. In fact, there's been an escalation in it in yes, some there ways. Has. You're like right. you're a Haitian migrant, you were better off under Trump because your ass got rounded up and shipped back within the first couple. Like, think about that. There's a political will amongst Democrats to round up Haitians who are coming here, escaping fucking economic and uh, environmental devastation. But there's not political will to like prison reform, healthcare reform. Uh, a rethinking of our fucking brutal foreign policy. None of that. There's not a political will for that. There's a political will to round up a, a hundred thousand people here in America and send them back to a place to die. Yeah, you know that's what that's one of the things you you brought it up, and I and I totally agree. I don't usually call it a moral red line, but I I do. I've reached a point in my life where, and maybe this comes from being raised in a union environment where when I go to vote and I see that name sitting there, I'm signed, like, to me, that's a sacred democratic trust, man. Like, I'm not a, even a huge fan of the American political system, but I'm also, I'm also respectful of it because I, I was raised in it and I live in it. And so to me, that's like signing your name underneath that person's name. You know what I mean? And Joe Biden, you know, I, 
I don't know whether or not it's true. He, he probably never faces day in court, but there are rape allegations and allegations of impropriety for him. I hate that type of shit. I'm signing my name under one of those guys, possibly. Um, I'm signing my name uh, underneath the name of a guy that opposed free school busing. You know, um, like basically a Jim Crow era policy. He, yep. he was he was against it. Uh, des- described uh, integration of schools as like uh, creating a racial jungle for mm. children. Just and you know, just the you know, and I'm not saying people can't change their minds on that shit. I just don't think Joe Biden has. And so when I'm looking, when I'm looking down the pipe of it, I'm signing my name against a guy that's just had his foot on the throat of the lower, the, the most vulnerable people in America. His entire political career, never met a war he didn't like, never met a corporation he wouldn't shake hands with. And I, I can't sign. I can't do it, man. That's my moral red line. I feel like he's against everybody that I think that the government should be protecting and trying to uplift. I think he's against the very idea, even if it was a lie from the beginning of the American dream, the idea that an average person can work hard and buy a little house and have a little family. When did that die? Uh, you know, in the last 20 years, that's when it died. And I feel like everybody just kind of rolled over and let it. And I can't do it anymore, man. I, I, I look at, I look at a vote for a DNC politician that I know is not going to do anything. Like you said, when there, there's like a, a compilation video out there of Joe, like 122 times saying it's time for a $15 minimum wage. <laughs> okay. Well, where's it, where's it at? Where's the political will for that? Where's your, where's any movement towards that anywhere? And I love people that use, I'm sorry to just ramble and ramble, but mansion and cinema. It's like, I wish people would look at history because this is not new. This idea of people holding out for political status and shit. Look, you may not like him as a politician, but look at the political history of LBJ. LBJ knew how to twist the nipple, man. He knew how to, he knew how to get somebody in that office and put the headlights on him and just go like, you know, there's a lot of uh, impropriety in your background, Joe. Yeah, Mr. Mansion. So, so to your point, you got made about a thousand good points there. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm, I, I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I, a, I'm a ranty guy. I ranted for a long time there too. So rants are very welcome here. But to your point, because some people would object to that and say, "Oh, it's not on Biden. He wants the $15 minimum wage, and he couldn't get it." Now, again, he did it for federal contractors and and federal workers. Good, but you're talking about sure. nationally. And look, if Biden wanted it. And he really cared enough. He could fight for it and he can get it. There is an endless amount of dirt on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Crimes that they have committed, crimes that their families have committed. We know Joe Manchin's daughter uh, was working for Big Pharma. And there are emails of her talking about, like, how do we price gouge people now? Okay. You have a federal investigation opened into that. You say, look, man, you call Joe Manchin in your office and say, look, man, uh, my guy Merrick Garland over here is going a little wacky and he's looking through all your stuff. And I think he's going to go after your daughter. I think he's going to prosecute your daughter. Now, I could talk him down from the ledge, but you got to do a favor for me, dog. This is how you play politics. This is what LBJ would have done. This is what FDR would have done. But he's not committed to that. So he's not going to do it. Another thing about Biden, to your point about just old school standard corruption, I mean, there's that old video of him when he first became a politician where he's bragging, I tried to prostitute myself to the big donors, but they said, come back to me when you're 40 or something like that. I mean, right. a guy who literally brags about corruption. Again, the, the 
picture I'm trying to paint here for people is why this is a genuine conundrum when we talk about this lesser evil voting. To your other great point on immigration, because again, some people might come after you for that and say that's not fair. It is definitely fair because he's continuing Title 42, which is a Trump-era policy, which was viewed as unconstitutional, but now he's still doing it. And the whole idea is, hey, we're in a pandemic, so no due process. We're going to ship your ass right out if you come in this country. Um, the other one is Remain in Mexico. They just put back in place Remain in Mexico, another literal Trump-era immigration policy. He's breaking records in terms of immigration. When he was vice president under Barack Obama, they broke the record in terms of deportation. So what you're saying there is factual. And then the final point I want to make is to your point on the thing that drove you crazy was the disingenuous arguments that you saw for Biden. On that, we totally agree. Because if somebody's making a disingenuous argument, then they're not being honest. And so the facts have to come first. If somebody wants to make uh, an intelligent, well thought out, honest and accurate argument for a lesser evil vote for Biden. I'm all ears, baby. I love that. Like, I, I, I would, that's an intellectual conversation. That's a stimulating conversation. And I'm here for it. But yeah, I, I saw a lot of that too. The disingenuous arguments for Biden, which just, and, and the, just the shaming of the people who wouldn't immediately fall in line. And that's what turns a lot of people off. Yeah. Um, you know, I just watching them butcher Bernie two times in a row. I couldn't I couldn't do it, man. Uh, watching all like any money that was donated to Bernie through the DNC went right in Joe Joe Biden's pocket and helped him just eke out a win. Let me ask you a question, because this is something I like to pose to people. And once again, this is not indicative of some position that I have. I don't want people to think that I think it would be better that Trump won in the last one. I want to make an argument for it, though. Let's say that Trump beats Joe Biden in our last election, in the last cycle. So we would be coming up on a couple years into the second Trump term. January 6th wouldn't have happened, right? Yes, we lose a lot of the benefits that you're talking about in terms of the Labor, Labor Relations Board and any uh, Supreme Court nominations that would have come up during that time. But we'd also be a couple of years from Trump being a non-issue. And what do you think about the argument that like, okay, so when it comes to immigration and a lot of other economic issues and shit, it's like uh, when Biden was elected, it just kind of hit pause on a lot of Trump era, era policies. And now there's a better than good chance, as we talked about earlier, that Trump just comes back again. So instead of an eight year period of pain where he finally cycles out, can't run again. Now we've got it, uh, you know, stretched out to 12 years of, you know, Trumpism, Trumpism, pause, pause, of, you know, just kind of keeping Trumpism kind of going, maybe little gains, and then Trumpism, Trump, you know, another four years. Right. Yeah. I think the issue with that is in my entire lifetime, anytime you get an ext extremist Republican elected, uh, what happens is the Democrats run further and further right. And so I don't see that, I, I get your point. Like if we had Trump now, well, then Trump would definitely be gone. So perhaps maybe we'd be able to get something better after that. But I think that at, the more you have a hardline Republican in there, the more the Democrats, the cucks they are and as corrupt as they are, they just run further and further right. So I don't see there wouldn't be uh, like anything positive necessarily that comes after a second Trump term. You know what I mean? So we could have Biden. the. No pressing pause in some way. And, and yeah, yeah. Cause that was, cause that's an argument that I've often heard like, okay, well, if, if Trump wins, well then 
it's obvious that the corporate Democrats have failed. And so now is the era of the leftists to assert themselves. And everybody will agree the leftists are the way to go because the corporate Democrats just got us Trump. But unfortunately, every single time a Republican wins, the Democrats go, let's be more like Republicans. So I think it, it, effectively, and I know this isn't a, a very optimistic answer for people, effectively, either way, we would have been fucked. But I think if we got Trump um, in office now, you just wouldn't have had those tiny little areas where they either pressed pause or made it a little bit better. Yeah, uh, that's really the only argument that I think you could make for it. Um, and it's sad. The, that is one of the things that I think makes me the uh, the most depressed about right. the yeah. lesser of two evils position is that's the le that's what we're fighting over. Just that little incremental difference. But so so let's end on a that just feels. Let's end on a positive note oh, though, sorry. because because um. And you and you made this point earlier. I think it's a brilliant point. I think it's the the type of wins that um, we can actually celebrate. There is a revival of the labor movement that I'm seeing now. This is definitely the first time in my lifetime that you're seeing labor unions no longer really play defense. A lot of them are going on the offense, and there are actually a lot of tangible wins, like the John Deere one. There 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 was a win there. Um, so that's one thing that we can look at positively. Another thing is, I do think. So when it comes to like economics, the people perpetually get fucked because we live in, you know, a, an authoritarian corporate state where they almost always get what they want. The corporations get what they want. The billionaires get what they want. But at least in terms of social issues, I think there is genuine progress in a positive direction in the sense that in our lifetimes, gay marriage was legalized. Granted, it was legalized through the Supreme Court, but the sentiment in the country is overwhelmingly pro-gay. I think you sure. see the polls going up and up on legalizing marijuana. I do think at some point, I don't know how it's going to come about, but at some point we're probably going to have marijuana legal at the federal level. So there is some positive movement on social issues. You're now seeing the labor unions start to reassert themselves. And at least you have now people are genuinely interested in specific issues, which are the solutions like Medicare for all, for example, or universal basic income or uh, $15 minimum wage or whatever. And so at least the consciousness has been raised to that point. On the broader picture, I actually totally agree with you. And I do have some sentiments that I would even describe myself as like relatively doomer and, and pessimistic. But I also think, you know, those other things I just pointed out are some hope for the future. And also, I do think as much as there's like defeatism on the left and, and nihilism and people who want to check out, there's also, I think, an equal number of people who are young, they're bright eyed and bushy tailed. And they're like, I'm just getting in, I'm just starting to get involved now and I'm not going to stop. And I'm you know, people might be doing single issue advocacy, for example. They might be petitioning a, a state government to do single payer in their own state or, or whatever it might be. That's the other thing is the direct ballot initiatives. Every time we have direct ballot initiatives, like 80 percent of them go the proper way. And so if we could somehow get more direct ballot initiatives around the country or get a federal direct ballot initiative every time we vote for president, you vote on like the top three or five issues. Well, then you're really talking about positive change. And that's almost a way that's almost a cheat code right around the corruption in D.C. Um, yeah, you know, uh, honestly, I think I get I get labeled a doomer a lot. I, I gotten to the point where I just kind of like self apply it. Um, but I really don't. Uh, a lot of the positions that I hold, I really don't think line up with doomerism. Like I'm a huge believer in the power of unions. Um, and I think that unions could just absolutely break this horrible cycle of uh, failure and 
political advocacy being this drab, horrible uh, moral calculus where we got to decide, you know, how many fractions of a percentage point this old fucking corporate vampire is than this one. I, I hate it. I want to really care. I want somebody out there that's fighting for the vast majority of people to be able to have a chance to affect real change in this country. I want groups of those people to have a chance. And I really think labor is the only entry point. I think that uh, history has shown you got to force your way. Um, we've got to, you know, if labor unions get larger and uh, conglomerate and uh, apply pressure uh, properly, I think that's a power, kind of an apolitical power uh, that could really affect change shut down uh, the kind of uh, gridlock in Washington, D.C., and uh, flush out some of the career politicians. I really think that there's a, a possibility for that to happen on the back of a union labor movement. And so that's where I pour a lot of my advocacy and time. Um, you know, and I recommend other people do it too. When you're looking at a political candidate to support, maybe take a look at the local labor movement in your area and, you know, kind of adjacent uh, support organizations and see if they could use some of your time or money. Um, because, yeah, I, I really think it's the only chance we got. I guess that does make me a doomer, you know, hope and a prayer doomer. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a very non-doomer opinion to say, look, labor unions are where it's at, put effort in there, organize, get involved in that respect. I think that's actually relatively optimistic note to end on. So, um, Paul, tell everybody... Uh, where they can follow you on social media, where they can watch you. I know you got Hideology, you got Deep Fat Fried, you got Onion Nuggets. I know you guys have a, a great Patreon over there. So go ahead and yeah. lay that out for everybody. Thanks. I'll give you the shill here at the end. Well, my name's Paul Zego. I'm at Paul Zego on Twitter if you want to see my inane ramblings there. Um, I'm also part of a uh, podcast called Deep Fat Fried with TJ Kirk, who's been uh, on uh, Crystal Kyle and Friends before, uh, and his brother Scotty. We've been doing that for a while. Uh, we cover politics, but we also cover just kind of uh, weird uh, facts about the world and history. Uh, our tagline is kind of uh, a show by the uneducated for the uneducated. So <laughs> that's what we really try and shoot for. Um, uh, I also do some inane ramblings over on my channel, Hideology. It's really an old school kind of channel where I do some streams and I actually talk to the chat. It's not just a like a constantly flowing, uh, you know, Pepe's and LOLs and stuff. So I talk to the chat and people can interact with me there. Um, so yeah, the best place to, to find us though, is there at uh, deep fat fried on YouTube. Our Patreon is down on the bottom. We got one of the most feature rich, uh, Patreons in the game. Uh, you get a lot for your seven bucks. So, um, and, and just I thank you, uh, by the way, to Kyle for hitting me up and giving me the opportunity to come on and, uh, talk with you it's been it's been too long man i hope we can do this some other time maybe have you on uh, deep fat fried for some political commentary or something that would be my pleasure and uh just so everybody knows i'm a i'm a genuine fan of of your shows so you guys are awesome i hope well, everybody you. checks you guys out and thanks man this was a pleasure yeah thank you man thank you for your support thanks everybody out there for watching all right so that's paul's ego guys um i love that conversation i thought it was a great conversation I, here's, here's what I love. I've told you guys this a number of times before, but here's what I love. I love, um, intelligent conversations with people who might slightly disagree with me. You know, um, if I'm talking to somebody who agrees with me on absolutely everything that could get a little bit boring. I know what I think. So if you agree with me on everything then I know what you think. And so, um, I like to switch it up a little bit. I like to have conversations with people who, 
I slightly disagree with and see if they can get me to change my thinking in certain ways. And one of the great parts of that conversation was um, going back and forth on the idea of lesser evil voting, because lesser evil voting comes up literally every time we have a presidential election and oftentimes with, you know, election for the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. And I do feel like a lot of the talk around that issue is very flippant. It's very glib. It's very close-minded. It's not well thought out. It's not fleshed out. And people have a, a gut feeling on it. And they go with that gut feeling at 100 miles an hour. And they end up making disingenuous arguments either to vote for their candidate or disingenuous arguments that if you partake in this system in any way, shape, or form, you're part of the fucking problem and shame on you. And... I, I have no interest in that tone. I have no interest in that tone. I have no interest in that, you know, black and white style thinking. I want to hear good points and good arguments that can sort of go across the board here. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of in agreement with TJ Kirk, the amazing atheist on this. I feel like there's a genuine moral conundrum that comes up every time we talk about lesser evil voting. Um, and so I enjoyed, you know, bouncing ideas off of Paul there and and sharing those thoughts and listening to what he had to say. And hopefully, listen, next time an election comes up, if you yourself are caught in that moral conundrum of do I do the lesser evil vote or do I not do the lesser evil vote, et cetera, et cetera, next time you have that conundrum, maybe come back and take a look at that part of the conversation because uh, I think we really, we went from A to Z there. We really got deep into it. So um, as you can see, wonderful guy. We have great rapport, um, super easy to talk to. And I highly, highly recommend everybody go check out Deep Fat Fried. Highly recommend uh, you check out Onion Nuggets. It's still the best name of all time. His ideology streams are great too. His ideology streams, he's just talking to the chat and bullshitting and, and talking about whatever. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm still a fan of what feels like the not super highly produced, like everything is perfect. Look, I like it when it's still off the cuff, shooting from the hip, just talking shit. And that's what those ideology streams are. And they're always entertaining and informative. So anyway, uh, everybody check that out. And thanks, of course, for listening to this show and allow me to do my shameless plug here at the end. If you like this show and you enjoy our conversations, then you can subscribe on Patreon for $5 a month. And if you pay that $5, it gets you a video of the show and it gets it to you a day early. Uh, you could also just uh, sign up on Substack for free, but then you get just the audio version of the podcast, not the video, and you get it a day later. So I want to say thank you again, everybody who does pay the $5 and basically as a, as a member of this show, it really means the world to us. And remember, guys, I am very proud of the fact that this show, uh, we don't take any ad money at all. You know, we could easily do that and there'd be, you know, people lining up down the block to give us uh, money for it. But we wanted to create something that's a little more pure. Uh not only in politics do I believe in like the small dollar donor model. I also, with this show, we wanted to build something that is almost as pure of a funding model as you could possibly get. And so that's what we have. And that's why we rely on uh, your wonderful support for this show. So again, thank you to everybody who pays that $5 a month on Substack. You guys mean the world to us. We couldn't do it without you. Um, and if you're not one of those people, please consider being one of those people. Cause again, it would mean the world to me. So, all right, guys, have a good one. We shall... See you next time. I'm out.